You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. How do we protect this information? And while we can't perhaps opt out, we can at least have some say in how it's used. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast, where we discuss online privacy, surveillance, legal cases, and policy battles that affect our daily lives. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hi, Ben. How you doing, Dave? We've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, my interview with Elizabeth Wharton. She's an attorney, and she's also vice president of operations and strategy at security company Prevalian. She's joining us to talk privacy and biometric data. We want to remind you that while this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ben, why don't you kick things off for us this week? Sure. So I spent a Wednesday morning on C-SPAN, uh, <laughs> as I as I sometimes do. Watching. Living the dream, Ben. Living I'm the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> it was a three-hour hearing at the House Judiciary Committee about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, parts of which are up for reauthorization this fall. A few members of uh, the Department of Justice and the National Security Agency were there to testify on behalf of some of these programs. Uh, and they are calling for all of these programs to be extended permanently. So there are a few provisions of that law that are set to expire. I'll mention a couple of them briefly and then focus on one that is of particular interest to me. Okay. One of them is what's called the roving wiretap provision. So FISA has a provision in the law where if a target of surveillance tries to evade the government, the government's uh, surveillance techniques by, say, switching phone providers, we can authorize what are called roving wiretaps. You don't have to get a separate FISA order to conduct surveillance Hmm. if this person changes the device that they're using. So the wiretap follows the person, not the device or the address. Exactly. Okay. Uh, So that's up for reauthorization. Okay. Business records provision allows the government to apply to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and that would compel the production of business records, driver's license, apartment leasing records. Hmm. This was kind of used to be known as the library records provision. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. what stuck Mm -hmm. out to people is that they could get a subpoena to obtain your your library records. Mm -hmm. Mine would be extremely boring. (laughs) But, you know, I'm sure some people have interesting library records. Sure. A lot of children's books for me. Lone wolf provision, you know, most of FISA is designed around foreign powers, so either the big bad guys like Russia and Iran or terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda. But we also want to be able to surveil lone wolves, people who aren't part of any ideological groups. 
And so this provision allows the government to do that. And so that's set to expire as well. The main one and sort of the, the central topic for this hearing is the call details records program. This was a program you might remember as being part of the Edward Snowden leaks in 2013. Mm. The domestic communications carriers were routinely handing over call detail records of all of their domestic customers to the National Security Agency to be available for data mining. So if the NSA had a reasonable, articulable suspicion that they could find evidence of terrorist activity in these call records, they could search them. Now, this is just metadata. So it's the number making the call, the number receiving the call, the duration of the call. Mm -hmm. Time of day, that sort of thing. Exactly. But, you know, depending on who you're calling, that could be pretty personal information. Right. Uh, Congress reauthorized this program in 2015. They changed it a little bit so that now the government has to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to get authorization to get these records for an individual selector, so like for an email address or a telephone number, and they can obtain those records from the company directly. So it's the right. company that actually holds the records. So rather than NSA gathering up all this information and keeping it themselves, it's now the job of the phone companies to do that, and NSA has to get permission to go into that. Exactly. Now, you know, pick your poison, who you'd rather have containing your call detail records, Mm -hmm. the government or the telecommunications company. I think most people would probably say the telecommunications companies. Mm. So this obviously became very contentious in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. In Mm. the past couple of years, we found out that routinely the NSA has been collecting unauthorized data, data that they didn't mean to collect and is not authorized under this program. We've also sort of learned gradually that this has not been a very effective tool in fighting terrorism, especially as our adversaries have moved to more advanced technology than simple, you know, call detail records. Mm. And so as a result, the NSA itself, in a highly unusual step, actually recommended that this program be discontinued. Hmm. Uh, They recommended that to the Trump administration. The Hmm. Trump administration, led by the former director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, said that they wanted permanent reauthorization of this program. So this was going against the recommendations of their own national security agency. Hmm. What they say is, even though this program is not successful now, you never know which threats are going to present themselves in the coming years. So we might as well have this power at our disposal. Hmm. And what was interesting to me about this hearing is that most members of the committee were just not having that explanation. Really? I mean, I think to paraphrase, you don't give somebody a loaded gun and expect them never to shoot it. And Hmm. we're giving the NSA this incredibly powerful weapon to collect call detail records, even if they don't have probable cause that a person is an agent of a foreign power or committing a crime just on reasonable suspicion that you're going to get foreign intelligence information. And particularly the Democratic members on this committee were very skeptical of the NSA and its justification for continuing the program. The upshot of all of this is it is now unclear whether this program will be reauthorized. Despite the NSA suggesting that they don't want it or need it anymore. Right. Now, the representative of the NSA who was at this hearing said, even though we're not going to use this program, the call detail records program, because we haven't figured out a way to run it efficiently, we still want the legal authority uh, if the case may present itself. I see. So, oh, interesting. So they're not saying do away with the authorization. They're just saying even though we're authorized, we may not find it useful to, to do. Right. And I think the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, a guy you've probably seen in the news a lot recently, was just very skeptical of that argument, said... This is a large invasion of privacy, potentially. I mean, call detail records. If you're calling your, you know, 
therapist at three in the morning or, you know, you're calling a sex hotline or an abortion doctor or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a pretty detailed description of a, of a person's private relations. Right. And I think in, in Chairman Nadler's view, if we're going to do something like that, it better be narrowly tailored to achieve the government's objective. And it, it actually has to work in terms of uh, being a counterterrorism tool. Some Republicans on the committee also expressed, I think, almost some some shock at the fact that this program was still in existence and that the National Security Agency was still pushing for it. Other Republican members seemed to favor permanent reauthorization. Generally, the, these things tend to get reauthorized. You know, a disadvantage for proponents of these types of programs is a lot of the information that would justify the programs is classified. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to say anything publicly at a, at a congressional hearing. So they might be able to have greater influence behind closed doors. Uh, but my guess is that the call detail records program as it exists now may not be authorized by the end of this calendar year. Hmm. You know, the one insight I have on this is I've interviewed several people from NSA over the years, including some pretty high level folks. And they've made the point that when, for example, information is gathered accidentally, it is a royal pain in the butt for the people who gathered it up. Absolutely. There's, there's a whole series of things they have to do and they have to document. And it really throws a kind of a monkey wrench into their day to day operations. So particularly that accidental gathering, they just really try to avoid it because it kind of ruins your day when, when you do it because of all the things you have to do to mitigate it. Absolutely. I mean, every NSA program has what are called minimization procedures. Mm. So getting rid of data that you were not authorized to collect. And I've heard the same thing. It, it's a pain. The analysts there are always, in my view at least, acting in good faith. It's not like they were seeking to collect unauthorized records. Uh, whatever system they were using failed them. Right. And right. yeah, mm. I mean, that creates a lot of extra work for them. And, and time is a finite resource. I mean, what was potentially useful about the call detail records program is that added some color to a general intelligence picture. Mm -hmm. Which target was calling whom, you know, mapping that out to different hops. So who was person A calling, if they're calling person B, who was person B calling. And so the time should be used to actually conduct that analysis, not towards purging records. And I think because it became such a burden, the NSA said, it's just not worth our, our time and effort anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, see how it plays out. My story this week, uh, I have to say, is a little lighter. <laughs> it's, uh, mm. it's actually uh, uh, kind of, uh, it seems like it might be straight out of a soap opera, but uh, This no. is totally going to be on a Law & Order Special Victims Unit episode <laughs> in the next year. I'm willing to guarantee you that. This is from the Daily Beast, uh, written by uh, Julia Arcega, and the headline is, Husband ordered to pay almost $500,000 after bugging tobacco heiress wife's iPhone. So, a gentleman by the name of Crocker Coulson, great name, he is the chairman of a performing arts school in Brooklyn. Sure and sounds like a Faulkner character, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it was right out of a soap opera. That's, Absolutely. That is a soap opera name. So, hats off to him. As I said, he's the Brooklyn Music School chairman, and he has been ordered to pay his ex-wife $200,000 in compensatory damages, $200,000 in punitive damages, and $41,500 in statutory damages, which works out to $100 for each of the 415 days he accessed her phone. So over a year, he was essentially bugging her phone. And what happened was these uh, folks were in the midst of a divorce, and his ex-wife's 
divorce lawyer discovered that he had been spying because he was going through financial records and he found a payment for a piece of software called OwnSpy, which is a piece of software that lets you listen in on conversations on other people's phones. Yeah, you got to keep those PayPal accounts private, uh, those <laughs> PayPal transactions. If you, if you don't want to get caught, what a shame to have that $50 charge show up in your PayPal bill. I mean, it's like you get a you know a bill for $50 that turns into a bill for 200000 or yeah. whatever it is. Let me go out on a limb here, Ben, and say maybe the better advice would be not to bug your ex-wife's phone. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> That's, that is certainly the best piece of advice. Right, um, right. For one, so that violates uh, a couple of federal statutes, but most notably the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, mm -hmm. which says that you cannot surveil somebody else's private device. Um, there are a lot of different exceptions to that act, particularly as it relates to government surveillance. Surveillance. But this is a pretty clear violation, and that's reflected in the statutory damages. And there are, there are no family exemptions for that? For example, obviously, you know, husband and wife, but what about children? So... I think there are exemptions because technically it's it's the parent who actually owns that device. You have to be uh, 18 or older to, uh, to sign the contract. I see. So the the child could be using the phone, but the parent is actually the purchaser of the device. Mm -hmm. I assume here the, the wife, the heiress, it was her phone. I would presume if because of the outcome of this case that the husband, his name was not on that contract. Right. They were not consolidating their phone minutes. Uh, did did not a, get her permission. <laughs> exactly. Right, and so right. without her permission, I mean, you are trespassing uh, into somebody else's private phone conversations. To give you an idea of how egregious the court thought this was, $200,000 in punitive damages is a lot. Is that right? Yeah. You know, punitive damages are intended to be used only in the most egregious of circumstances. We're saying not only should you compensate the victims for their, you know, emotional and financial losses, but we're going to tack on more money just as a, a punishment to you for engaging in this type of conduct because we want to prevent other people from doing crazy things like monitoring your wife's cell phone for a period of two years. Hmm. So to me, this just says that the court took this surveillance very seriously. I mean, $500,000 is a, a lot of money to pay. I don't know how much uh, the chairman of a performing arts school makes, mm -hmm. uh, but probably less than a, a tobacco heiress, I would guess. <laughs> um, now, explain to me what's the difference between the punitive damages and the statutory damages. So the statutory damages are monetary damages for violating the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Mm. The punitive damages are levied by the court. So we can either be a jury if this was a jury trial or the judge if the judge was the finder of fact. Uh, and they'll levy those damages not on the basis of any statute, but on the basis of their own interpretation as to whether there should be additional punishment, so to speak, mm. uh, based on the egregious nature of the conduct. Um, I see. And so $200,000 in, in that context is a lot. Like I said, I mean, we see punitive damages when there's, you know, exploitative behavior. A lot of the punitive damages cases are when, you know, corporations have some policy or, or, or hidden fee that rips off consumers and compensatory damages wouldn't be enough to convey the message that that this is something that's wrong. So when you see punitive damages, it's it's almost always a, a bad sign for a defendant. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess the lesson here is that if this is something you're thinking about doing, not only is it the wrong thing to do, but it could be an expensive thing to do. 
Yeah, that's $500,000 is a lot of money. And you may think you're only paying $50 for spying software, but Mm -hmm. um, it's going to cost you a lot more uh, if you're caught. So, yeah. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our listener on the line. This week, we've got a call from a gentleman named Russell. He says he's from Utica, New York. And Russell has some privacy concerns that are, I suppose, more common than you might think especially as folks are living more of their lives online. We'll let Russell describe it in his own words. Here's Russell. Hi, this is Russell. And I'm wondering how much I need to be concerned with people monitoring my cameras and microphones on my laptop. Can the FBI actually listen in? Or is that just something that happens on TV shows and movies? Thanks. All right. So, Ben, what do you think? So certainly you understand the fear, right? I mean, nothing scares us more than the government hacking into our computers. Something you see in Hollywood movies. Exactly. Right. Um, Spying on whatever it is we do with our laptops. Right. So I I understand the fear. There have been a limited number of judicial cases dealing with this. Really? Um, Oftentimes it's the FBI going to seek a warrant to conduct these searches for some sort of severe intelligence or criminal justice investigation purposes. Mm. And courts have been very, very reluctant for obvious reasons to grant warrants to allow the FBI to do this. Mm. The bigger concern from my perspective is private hackers who possess the technological capabilities and don't face the same sort of restrictions that the government does on conducting this type of surveillance. Right. There's no oversight of the bad guys. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Um, So it's really not that much of a threat when it comes to law enforcement because it's been, the law enforcement agencies have only tried a limited number of times. I guess it's not worth the effort. They know that's a tough thing to get permission to do. Absolutely. I mean, this is as much of an invasion on one's privacy as you can possibly think of, meaning Mm -hmm. you're going to have to have a pretty persuasive justification to a judge that you need to conduct that type of surveillance. Um, I see. And it has been done in a couple of circumstances, but it's a very, very high bar. Hmm. Um, You'd have to have probable cause that you'd catch somebody basically committing a crime on their webcam. You know, when it comes to protecting yourself from hackers, obviously, Always uh, have your latest security features installed, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're super paranoid, you know, put a little towel in front of your webcam. Cover it with a Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are, those are people do that. Yeah. foolproof yeah. methods. Uh, yeah. There are little, uh, little sliding windows you can put in front of them that uh, you can see people give away at trade shows and you can find at your local electronics store. Yeah, so I found out that um, this listener wasn't the only person who has this fear. James Comey, among other people, have said that they have something that that covers their webcam when they're Mm. on their laptop computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're not alone, listener. I wouldn't worry as it relates to law enforcement unless you're literally in the commission of committing a crime. (laughs) You've got bigger things to worry about, probably, than in that case. All right. Well, thanks to Russell for uh, calling in and asking that question. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Elizabeth Wharton. She's an attorney, and she's also VP of Operations and Strategy at security company Prevalian. She's joining us to talk about privacy and biometric data. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Elizabeth Wharton. She is an attorney, and she is also one of the founders of a security company called Prevalian. And she joins us to talk about biometrics. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth Wharton. When you look around and you sort of establish what the state of things is when it comes to biometrics and how that's affecting people's privacy, how do you describe that? It depends on the context that you're looking at it. I mean, on the one hand, everybody's uploading pictures to Facebook and other social media and tagging themselves. And yet recognizing that there are benefits to being able to use your fingerprint to start your laptop. You can bypass long security lines at the airport using your face as your passport. Similarly, custom lines. And if you're coming in and out of the U.S. So you've got this whole mix of competing interests. And at the same time, states are jumping in and saying, hey, wait a minute, we missed the boat on some other privacy protections. We're not going to miss the boat this time. And so what are we seeing in terms of actions from individual states? Well, they're going in and just as with a lot of stuff, for example, the data privacy laws in general, there is no federal data breach Mm. standard in law. So one of the things that we're looking at from a state level is they're saying, hey, we've created our patchwork here. Let's create a patchwork for this. So you've got even Maryland just jumped in the game where they're passing legislation that keeps the biometric data, treating it as the PII, same as what you saw with HIPAA and some of the others, that it's protected, be it facial scanners, and curious to see where some other states are going to go, because I feel like it becomes a game of one-upmanship, where, okay, you did this, well, here, hold my beer, watch what we're going to (laughs) do. Does that classification of making it PII, what's the practical implications of that? Well, it brings in additional protections. And in the cases you're seeing, for example, in Illinois, when the biometric, you know, your facial recognition, that information, the measurements of your face, you have to have a plan. You have to have, same as with other PII, you have to Someone, you have to have someone in charge. You have to say who can view this information. How can it be used? How is it being stored? And how is it being destroyed as well? Is it six months? Is it two years? But you can't just keep it on somebody's laptop and whomever asked for it, you just email it out. Now, what about broad surveillance systems? I'm thinking, you know, close to where we are, Baltimore certainly has a system of video cameras in place. We've heard about these sort of of things at airports where uh, they're checking uh, who might be on one list or another by using facial recognition. Yeah, well, you have airlines, and I believe it's Delta, 
that is going in and, hey, you don't need your boarding pass and your driver's license, just sign up for the facial scan. Uh, Clear is also using the biometric data and information. I went through BWI just this week and they offered, hey, for five minutes of your time, we'll get you set up and clear and you'll be able to just breeze right through no more invasive lines and scans and all that. And I thought, Hmm. all right, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Sort of trading one thing for another, perhaps. Yes. And where it also gets to be fun is looking at there's a difference between private entities collecting this information where you're voluntarily offering it as opposed to the involuntary collection, be it the license plate readers, different kind of data. But at the same time, if it's the government or local law enforcement collecting it, they're going to have different obligations, protections, as opposed to a private entity, a company, a store tracking your face as you go through and perhaps reading your expressions as you go through and stand in front of one display as opposed to another display or what's catching your eye. Yeah, it makes me wonder what options are available in terms of opting out. It may seem like a really basic question, but is there anything that keeps me, from a legal point of view, of having some sort of disguise from putting a, a fake mustache on and uh, you know sunglasses and a, a hat, a, a false beard or something like that? It depends on who's collecting the information, how it's being used. And I'm curious to see how states are going to do that. Because just because someone wants to wear glasses, maybe they don't need them. But are they using them to evade their data collection? And whether it's considered a mask versus who's to say, I have a nose job, so to speak, is it because I'm evading something or mm-hmm. something other than an awkward shaped nose, in my opinion? Right. Did you get your eyebrows done or have a mole removed or something like that that uh, could throw these scanners off? Yeah. And the other flip side is then when does it become acceptable? Let's check medical records for this or makeup. I mean, one of the things is you look at choices in appearance And if people, and I've seen certain things advertised of this will help defeat certain systems. But when you're talking about the protests that are going on in Hong Kong, at what point does protecting your right to free speech or in their case, a protest and expressing and altering your appearance that way to avoid the detection? Well, what if it's the bank on the corner that was using facial recognition for instead of your ATM card, that kind of thing. What happens to that information? Do you, can law enforcement pull it, use it for whatever? Yeah, it also strikes me that we, we've seen these studies that show that facial recognition systems in particular have a much lower degree of accuracy when it comes to minority groups. Yeah, I mean, they're biased. Exactly. At what point does the reliance on the AI when the algorithm that created it were not created perfect. And it's not like, should I have to go get a tattoo added or removed because somebody stole my identity? Do you suppose we're headed in some direction where we're going to establish exactly what our rights are and are not when it comes to this sort of thing? If not, I mean, the states are starting to take it upon themselves to do this. And so ultimately, 
to avoid the confusion of, well, I'm compliant with this state or this country. And what happens traveling abroad? I mean, you look at what happened in the EU, the right to be forgotten. And apparently it only applies to folks in the EU at that time, according to recent court decisions. So similarly, while it's okay for the company operating in Georgia to collect this information, but not in Maryland Mm -hmm. to collect the information. And I think as state legislators and Congress start looking at some of these issues, especially with how they're looking at Facebook, they're going to have to make some decisions to, as you said, how do we protect this information? And while we can't perhaps opt out, we can at least have some say in how it's used. Yeah, because uh, your biometric information is more or less forever. Yeah. When you start looking at what's in Maryland, it's not just the facial, it's the voice recognition, it's your genetic material, as well as any unique biological characteristics. Well, what happens when the next state over doesn't capture the same information? Or again, it's not like you can change your fingerprint easily. Mm hmm. I also can't help wondering about, you know, let's say there was a state that had certain rules when it came to this sort of thing. But let's say I'm I'm shopping at a, a retail establishment that has some sort of centralized security system. You know, multiple stores send their signals back to one place. You know, how do they filter out who's from where and what they can do in one place versus another? I, I can see this getting complicated. Well, and ask, I believe it's uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, and Mm. currently going through this, at least in the state of Illinois, because if you're using, in their case, they were using facial recognition as part of their security system and not having a plan in place for who can access that information is potentially going to trip them up in those states. And the lawsuits to that effect are nothing new in the sense of some of them go back to 2016, 2017. But how do you do that? And what do you do with stores that are operating and might have, as you know, the central database that they're keeping some of this information could be, you know, their marketing center could be in California, whereas most of their stores are on the East Coast. Or what happens when you get those conflicting rules? And then what also, as with any great policy, what happens when people don't follow it. Right. How do you maintain the regulations? What's your enforcement regime, I suppose? Well, enforcement's only so good as, I mean, it's as we see with the ransomware and uh, similar data breaches, you know, we had a great policy for this, but we checked the box and it's just, we chose somebody either ignored it or the system failed. Well, this is a little bit different than a bank account number or a credit card number. I mean, this is your biometric information. Right. What are your recommendations for organizations who want to get ahead of this, who may want to use this sort of technology, but they want to make sure that they're doing so within the proper legal boundaries? Where should they begin? Well, the easiest place is looking at why am I collecting this information and what am I doing with it? Because it's the same thought process that they're going to have to be going through with any of their customer information data. That while it might be great to have certain 
beacon location data on when potential customers are coming into their store. You need to protect, know who has access to to this information. Are we collecting it for business purposes? Are we collecting it for privacy or other, you know, other purposes, basically defining what are you collecting? Why are you collecting it? How are you protecting it? And who has access to it? And who is destroying it? So that same thought process and risk analysis with any other piece of information, this needs to fall into that same metric. All right, Ben, what do you think? Very interesting. One thing that always sticks out to me on topics like this, and I think Elizabeth uh, articulated it quite well, is this lack of voluntariness. Hmm. We might, in the abstract, be able to avoid biometric scans. You know, maybe I opt out here and I opt out there. Sure, Delta right now is the only one that will uh, scan my face as my airline ticket. Maybe I fly United. Mm -hmm. In the long run, that's not going to be the case. And, you know, unless you want to be a literal shut-in who lives in the woods, your biometric data is going to get exposed. It's Hmm. part of your daily life. Um, They're going to read your license plate. They're going to have access to your license plate photos. Somebody has access to your fingerprint. And so I think what's what's difficult from a consumer's perspective is there really isn't a meaningful opportunity to opt out of the collection of biometric data, which makes it, I think, even more problematic that the government would not need a traditional warrant to get access to this data. Hmm. I, I recall someone saying recently, stuck with me, they said what it comes down to at a certain level is you either participate in society or you don't. Right. That's exactly it. I guess you could say part of the cost of participating in societal affairs, the cost of traveling, the cost of walking around a city that has persistent video surveillance or aerial surveillance is you lose a measure of privacy. Most of us will will never notice. The government's not going to try and get access to my fingerprints or Mm -hmm. to my facial biometric data. But I think we have to recognize that that's, that's the sacrifice we're making. And as technology continues to evolve, there's no longer going to be any meaningful opportunity for people to opt out of sharing their biometric data. It's almost going to be collected as a as a matter of routine. And, you know, I think that that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I can't help wondering if overall, does it ratchet up the level of anxiety that we all have? That this notion that we're always being watched, even when we're just walking down the street, minding our own business, that there are cameras on every corner, you know, collecting our data. Does that lead to an overall feeling of of wariness, of anxiety? It's such something I wonder about. I wonder about it, too. I mean, I would love to see some like public opinion data on this. My hmm. my just sort of anecdotal impression is that it's just not something people think about very much because hmm. you're not really going to come into contact with the consequences. You know, right. maybe after you're arrested for committing a crime, the government, you know, local law enforcement will reveal a trial that they collected biometric data. Uh, they were able to, you know. Right. Geolocate you based on your cell phone's GPS. Right, yeah. right. The security camera from the McDonald's you had breakfast at that morning. Exactly. Collected. Sure, sure. But until you're at that trial, it's just not something that one really notices. You know, I worry about it in the long run. If it is something that people start to think about, then it could have a real chilling effect on people's expression, people's rights of association. I mean, if you knew that there was going to be persistent surveillance wherever you went, maybe 
you'd be more reserved about going to a favored religious institution mm, or mm-hmm. another group that might be potentially you know, publicly disfavored. Mm-hmm. And that would, I think, be really bad. Now, of course, the other side of this is convenience. I love the fact that I turn on my iPhone, it reads my face, and it turns on. Right. I don't have <laughs> right. to exhaust my thumbs by typing in a passcode. Yes, get the blisters on the, on your thumbs. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, that's excellent. Right. It's, most of us probably would value that convenience because the effects on our personal privacy are theoretical and, and tangential. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.